How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, now in its third series. Third series, who'd have believed it? Not me for a kickoff. My guest today is poet and performer Sue Andy, OBE. A third-generation member of the diaspora with a grandmother from Wicklow and a Nigerian father, she is the freelance cultural director of the National Black Arts Alliance. Her one-woman show, The Story of M, is a tribute to her Liverpool Irish mother and is featured as part of the Mixed Museum's online exhibition of mixed-race Irish. Here's a sample of Sue Andy at work with part of the poem, Actress. Am I an actress? You are fooling. Ask me if I'm black. Ask me that, go on. Ask me that. The role I play wasn't written just for me. The script is etched upon my heart. With birth of life, I play my part. The stage I play is all the world. Against backdrops painted shades of white is how I'm seen and heard. Upstage I play adversity. Downstage I act humility. Stage left performs soliloquy. Stage right here the freedom in my delivery. Sometimes the audience, the eye cannot see. As backstage my voice speaks distant, hauntingly. And in their quivering mass, the audience prays for the scene not to last. When I chat with Sue Andy, it's the morning after the night before, when she'd been awarded the Manchester BME Network's Lifetime Award. So we start by talking about that. Do you know what? It was really odd. Um, I don't identify with the terminology. But I sat there. I got the email saying you've been nominated. And I emailed back saying, well, I better attend. And I sat there thinking, I could nip off and have a cup of tea here because... This is not going to happen because everybody was doing really good work. You know, feeding the homeless, feeding families with no money. And I almost left the meeting. And then I thought, oh, it might seem really rude, I better stay. So in that sense, it was completely unaccepted. Unaccepted, unexpected rather, unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's a bit phallic. I'll 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 leave my ne- my next my next gag to one side there. Um, <laughs> when you started saying you don't think you you didn't think that it's like you'd get the award because other people were doing such good work and so forth. Is that to say that you don't think that uh, that you don't rate the notion of uh, performance and poetry uh, alongside in the same in the same category as the other things that people do? Oh, but in this moment in time, with every, all the emphasis on the virus. That seemed to be all the other awards were going to that kind of work, you know, supporting people through the virus and through the lockdown. I've never been to one of their awards before, so I don't know previous years, um, you know, what kind of organisations to give awards out to. But it is a a network of voluntary organisations, you know, the old terminology grassroots. A lot of them are religious based. And... um, I was just surprised, chuffed, but surprised. And how do you feel about awards? I mean, obviously you've been awarded the OBE and um, various other bits and pieces. I mean, so how do you feel about awards in general? 
How do I feel about awards? Um, my OBE, this is an old story. I, I keep telling it because it's true. When I got my OBE, when I got the nomination, or the letter that said, Tony might be thinking of possibly asking the Queen, maybe if, you know, if she does not, um, for your work in ethnic art. And I wrote back and said, I don't work in ethnic art. I work in black art. Yours sincerely, Suanda, bump in the post. So I didn't expect to get it. And I was telling someone the other day, <clears throat> my first day at secondary school, I'd come from a school, Webster Street School in Side, that was nicknamed the League of Nations. So that tells you the school. Of course, we had race problems, but the, the school role was right, was global, right? So I get to the secondary school, I line up with all the other first year kids. I've got this huge briefcase my dad's bought me. And two old people that turned out to be fifth years, and they were twins, I'd never seen twins before, so I was petrified, came and I was frog marched out of the hall, up to the headmaster's office, who didn't look up, and said to me, you're the first coloured child in this school and I can make sure you're the last. The award notification went out last day of January, I've that is 30-31st, in the old time of teletext. And a friend of mine who worked at the BBC immediately rang me and said, congratulations, and I was surprised. And the next morning, my ex-headmaster rang me up and said, I always knew you'd go a long way, and I put the phone down on him. All right? So, I guess it, I believe, I misbelieve, I want to believe that Alex Anker, who's the chair of BA, had nominated me, because Alex always said, whatever they can get, white people, we can have. I was devastated when I found out later it was from the Arts Council, but that's a different story. So I get it, and a friend of mine, Scotty, who's from the Lake District, sent me a card that said, outstanding black, um, no, it can't be achievement, because it's the outstanding black, what's he for? Our outstanding black effort, I think it may have been said. Um, and that made me laugh. But my friend Pavinda, who's Ugandan Asian, she wrote on her card, other buggers efforts. And that's true, because there's nothing you achieve, you achieve on your own. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. From the parent that wakes you up in the morning, or the partner that cooks your food, or there are people in your group that help, you know, nothing's a solo achievement. So even with this one, I wouldn't have got this without all the members of BAA. And all the other, you know, artists I've worked for and people have held my hand and people who slapped me when I've been out of order. So I'm okay with it. It doesn't make me feel, huh, I'm wonderful, because I know I'm wonderful, but you know. Yeah. That's a long answer, isn't it? Bloody hell. And growing up in uh, in Manchester back then, I mean, it's like, uh, what was what what was life like? Because you talk about the, the headmaster who says you're the... You're the first coloured child that we've had and I can make you make sure you're the last and so forth. I mean, did you come across that kind of response to you? No, no, because I've gone to a primary school where it was cool. You know, kids were, were respected for being who they were and, and they're from the cultural identity and things like that. 
I mean, we had a dodgy member of staff, but that was dodgy in a different way. But I don't remember anything untowards on a racist level from the staff until I got to secondary school. And then we had the cliches, you know, we had the gym teacher, geography teacher was ex-army and a thug. Do you know what I mean? We had a, a domestic science teacher who'd lived in Nigeria, God help me, you know, for that horrible woman. Um, you just stepped out you from primary into a completely different world. What were you like at school? Um, obnoxious, cocky, cheeky. Not a nice, not a, not a nice kid. No, I wasn't a nice kid. I did have an ego. You know, I knew I was pretty. I had great clothes. I had hair like Shirley Temple. My mother made my wrinklets every day. Oh, I was not nice. No. You know that poem, once a little girl had a little curl right in the middle of the forehead? Mm-hmm. That was me. I've got pictures of myself from primary school in groups, you know, kids on a day out. I put an arrow over my head so you know which ones are me. I mean, come on. No, I wasn't nice. And that's, you know, I'm not trying to be modest, but that streak, it does raise its head every now and again. And sometimes I think about it and I try to analyse it and it has nothing to do with being black, but in a way it has a lot to do with being black because it was at a time when there was friction, that's the correct word, between full blood black and mixed race black. Um, and yeah, friction from white kids as well, you know, because we're talking, we're not talking before the Windrus, but our, our parents, our fathers came before the Windrus, long before the Windrus. Um, and so when Caribbeans came in and started to make families, we weren't aware of the issue of skin tone in the Caribbean. You know, mm. the darker the skin, the more likely works in the field, the lighter the skin, the higher profile. And there was, yeah, there was definitely friction. My father used to say to me, I want you to marry a Nigerian. If you don't marry a Nigerian, you marry a white man, I'm not happy. You marry a Caribbean, don't come home. And yet he married a white woman. Well, there were no black women, were there? And anyway, my uncle Tota said, you know, why marry a black woman? We've got loads of them in Africa. We haven't got any white woman. Marry a white one. Get some, you know. It depends the way you look at it as serious or jest, wasn't it? Yeah. And what was home like? Um, I imagine for my mother it was horrendous. Um, it was really hard, I think. I think it was really, really hard. I think it's took me a long time to realise just how hard it was. Even when, you know, my parents were still together for that white woman to step out, having black kids, having a black husband, and then to step out now as a divorced woman with black kids. I think it was really, really hard. There seems to be a, 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 an aspect of being an outsider. Sorry, not, an out, not an outsider in the area because human and Mossad were, were villagers. We were villagers and there were lots of white women with black children. But that didn't mean 
women who did not have black children did not look down on the women with black children. Right. You know, so there was a sense, I imagine, of community between the women if they didn't like each other. And I'm probably in that as well, a pecking order of, you know, the mother whose kids weren't perfectly turned out. My hair was done every day and I had made to measure clothes because my mother believed people judge a book by the cover. Mm. And no one was going to judge me. We were going to be spotless. Our home was spotless. Everything was done so the outsider, the neighbour, couldn't pass judgment. My kids are fed, my kids are clean, my, you know. And obviously there are mothers who didn't, you know, fulfil that role, whether their children were black or white. They just didn't, you know, they didn't have the skills or the interest or the love, maybe, to fulfil that role. You know, abuse of children in the lack of care crosses all race lines, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, God, yes. I worked with an artist in the States. Well, no, I'll rephrase that. I hung out with an artist in the States, Carrie Mae Ween. She's a photographer and folklorist. And she had this, this image of a little boy. And he was under the stairs, you know, peeping out the door under the stairs. And the caption was, that woman was so crazy, she used to lock me up because I looked like the man. Now, in the UK, the man is, is the police. And signed. Mm. So I never understood this pitch for ages. And then I had a girlfriend and I'd known her for quite a while. And one day her daughter said something and I looked and I looked at my friend and said, is her father? And she said, yeah. So I go back to that picture and that picture says, my mother locked me under the stairs because I looked so much like my father. So you raise a child who is the spit of the man who's abused and left you. That's really hard to love that child, isn't it? Because every day that child reminds you that you've been dumped. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Find out more and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Given that the stories of the mixed-race Irish are just beginning to be told, I wondered how Sue Andy was treated as a child by her mother's Irish relatives. Well, she didn't have any family. Did she not? No, her parents had died young. Right. Um, my mum was raised in Noel Park Children's Home, along with her two sisters. So she had no family. My maternal grandfather died at sea and I suspect my maternal grandmother had cancer because she, she um, what's the expression, wasted away. They were taken in by neighbours who wanted to keep them and the family in Ireland who were Catholic wouldn't let them keep them because these neighbours weren't Catholic. How stupid is that? So they went into the orphanage and had the most horrendous childhood. The eldest sister came out, she went back to Ireland, and my Auntie Joseph and my mum stayed in Liverpool, eventually moving to Manchester. And um, when did your mum meet your dad? Before I was born. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I have no idea. All right. My Auntie Josie um, met a Welshman 
and had my eldest cousin, Jimmy. So my eldest cousin is no longer with me, but was white with red hair. And she moved with her husband to Wales, to Welsh speaking Wales, where his family wouldn't speak to her because she couldn't speak Welsh. They completely ignored her. So in the middle of the night, as they say, you know, um, she packed up and she brought Jimmy and she came back to Liverpool and got a room. My auntie Josie was very Elizabeth Taylor looking, you know that look. And my uncle Toto stopped on the street one day and said, bring that child, because Jimmy was the secret in the room, I imagine, and you and come to my room and I'll feed you. So that's how she, my auntie Josie got with my uncle Toto. Uncle Toto was my father's cousin. Um, they're now all working on the ships. My, I imagine my mum came out the home, moved in with Josie, hung around with the same guys, got pregnant with my brother. And she's a Catholic girl, despite everything else, she's still a Catholic girl. And his father, Malcolm, my brother Malcolm, his father was called Danny, um, wouldn't acknowledge parenthood, fatherhood. So she took him to court. And she won the case, but she didn't take his name because he put her through so much. I think by that time, my dad was either at sea or already a prisoner of war. And um, he kind of stepped forward to do the right thing because one of his countrymen had done the wrong thing. And that's how they got together. It was not love. It was respectability for my mum. You mentioned, um, uh, I was reading through um, something with the, uh, the, the, the mixed race Irish, um, uh, the mixed museum thing, but do you say that your, your, was your brother born in the Magdalena laundries? Did I read that correctly? No, no, he wasn't born there, but when she had him, she went back. It's just like, you know, how Catholics might never go to church through their adulthood, and then death knocks and they grab the rosary. It's like it never goes away, doesn't it? So she went back, she went, she had nowhere to go. She was pregnant. She knew this child was going to be black. She'd never, let me get my dates right. No, she would have never seen um, a black child close to her because, yeah, I can't remember dates now, but Malcolm and my Auntie Josie's, oh no, no, John, no, John would have been born. No, she would have seen a black child. I'll take that back. She would have seen that because my cousin John would have been born. Um, yeah, so she went back to nurse to the um, well, the laundries, wasn't it? To the nuns, and obviously didn't tell them the child was black because I mean, good grief! Can you imagine the treatment they were getting anyway? So when I read articles about nuns selling babies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, well, I know it's true because my mother always said nobody wanted a black baby. Well, thank you, blessed Jesus. Did your mum still maintain a sense of Irishness? I mean, thought you talk about the Catholicism, but were there any other aspects of that to her? Or In everybody superstition you could name. Every superstition, every daft saying, everything, yeah. In that way, yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, between that and the Nigerian, talk about stress me out in life, don't do that, don't want that, so don't want that, call out there, I was going to ask, do you think there are, there are similarities between the Nigerian diaspora and the Irish diaspora there? 
Oh, yeah, very much so on that. Yeah, I think so anyway. I mean, somebody can call, tell me I'm wrong, but I think so anyway. The talking, you know, everything's a story. So on the Nigerian side, it's a, it's a lecture and a story. But that thing of, yeah, everything being a story and um, I think in the women, I mean, there's a, I think there's a similarity between the Irish mother and the Jewish mother. Everything I've done for you, all the sacrifices I... You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. But she did. You know, in fairness, she did. But you're a kid, don't you? You don't understand. You don't... I think the only time as a little girl, before 11, that it really, you know, hit home what my mum had done was I made friends with a, another black girl, an African girl, and um, I went round to her home. The street she lived on, my cousins lived on, they had a big house on that street, so I knew that street really well. Of course, my cousins had a club, so I mean, that should have said something about where they were financially. And I went to this girl's home and we went inside and the hallway was dark and the stairway was dark. And we got to the first landing and there was a cooker on the landing and I said, ooh, why is there a cooker on the landing? And she said, that's where we make our food. And then she took me into a room where she was a mom and a dad, and I can't remember how many brothers and sisters. I never let that girl come to my house. And in fact, I stopped being friends with her because I was embarrassed by all that I had. And I think that day it made me realise just what my mother had achieved on her own. You know, and I was embarrassed that this other little girl had nothing and cooked on the landing and shared a toilet. You know, we had a bloody bathroom. We had a tin bath when I was very little and we very quickly had a bathroom. And that's very, that's very Scouse and very Irish. I've got friends, um, gay couple, and when they first got together, he had been, I won't say their names, but he had been in a long relationship and his partner had died and he got with this new guy, quite a bit younger. And of course, you're a bit, you know, who's this new guy? Who's this new guy? And I was having a party in the garden once, and, and I heard the new guy say, oh, you know, my mother buys a new three-piece suite every, every Christmas. And I said, oh, you're from Liverpool. And his face went red, and he went, how do you know? I said, a new three-piece every Christmas. That's dead Irish, that's dead Scouse, that. And I walked away. And although we are very close friends, I think at the time, he didn't realise he'd given him, because he was trying to be quite posh, you know, to me. And I said, yeah, that's dead Scouse, that's dead Irish, that, you know, you decorate and get a new three-piece suite that falls apart by Christmas Day, but, you know. So, yeah, there are, there are those kind of connections and that hard, and I suppose, you know, in the jobs that she did, again, it's, it's with more knowledge as you grow older. You know, she was never much more than a cleaner or a dinner lady. And although we know they are or were, well, are very working class jobs, they did fall mm. into the hands of the Irish, you know, the underdog. And now, you know, you go into industrial buildings and over the years I've seen that staff change from Asian to new and arrived Africans, in, you know, forced in rivals through refugee have taken those jobs over. So, you know, the class system 
definitely has a, I wouldn't say cultural heritage, but national it's nationality linked in a sense, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's the notion of having like, um, being relative recently arrived, I suppose. It's, it's taking those jobs that other people won't take. Well, that I mean, that's exactly what I mean, yeah. So you, 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 you regard it as being at the bottom of the pile, aren't you? And I'm saying as things have changed over, that position has gone to arrival of South Asian people, and more recently it's gone to Africans who've come in as refugees. Um, you know, I say that because I always say, when do you stop being a refugee? When someone says I'm a refugee, and I think, yeah, but where are you from? There's no country called refugee land, you know. Um, no matter the circumstances, don't lose your country, don't lose your identity. So, um, and she wasn't, she could spell. She was proud of her spelling, but she had skills, you know. Um, she worked at the Guardian, Manchester Guardian Evening News in the canteen there. Um, one of the, I suppose, many jobs she had where she didn't reveal her children. And um, when she'd been there long enough, felt safe enough, I went in one night, she worked in the night canteen, and you know, the princess is a very, I don't know now, but it used to be a very close union, you know, fathers gave the jobs to their sons, and and I can remember a scouser got a job, so he was brought home with her, you know, fed him, because he was scouse. Um, but um, my mum, from being a baby, used to dress me, parents would never do this now, of course, dress me, feed me, and put me in pram and put me outside the front door. That was so. That was sorted, you know. And uh, and I used to often come in with money in the pram. I didn't know this at the time. And um, so now I'm still under eleven because we're in this house. And she lets me go in to the canteen. And whilst I'm there, a few of the men came over and said, "Did she used to be in a pram outside a house on Radnor Street? Because we used to put money in the pram." Now. Would they put money in the pram of a white baby? What was that? Do you understand where I'm going? What was that? I mean, it might have been a hatner, it might have been a penny, but what was it that made them feel that charitable? I'm in this smart part, and I'm smart, you know. I'm a smart, I'm not a scruffy baby and a dirty napper. And if you, you know, if you were to sit with them and ask them, you'd probably make them feel dreadful, but it's almost what goes on in the in the, the back of the conscience of people when they respond to a different race. We'll be back with Sue Andy in a moment. But first, we turn to the plastic pedestal, where one of my interviewees pays tribute to a member of the diaspora of personal or cultural significance. This week, Cherry Smith on singer and collaborator Lauren Kinsella. Yeah, I'd like to nominate Lauren Kinsella for the plastic pedestal. She's on a gold or titanium pedestal to me. She is just such an inspiration. And I just love how, in a way, you know, people say we're haunted by history and she's haunting it back. She's taking it on and in and she's done some training in Shanosh singing and really tried to inhabit that, that singing with that improvisational edge, which brings, I suppose, tradition and rebellion together, which is why we probably, you know, sync so well as friends and collaborators. There's, there's a deep longing to be considered 
part of Irish culture, but there's also great claustrophobia perhaps in it, or wanting to shift things, um, edges of, of culture and, and, and belonging. And um, I, I really like what she does with, you know, beyond, she's got a beautiful lyrical um, singing voice and is a great writer, but I also love that abstraction of the voice into something you know, I've never really heard before. And people said that her voice touched them where they'd never been touched. And, you know, it's, it's really tragic that someone like that then can't be singing live. You know, she hasn't sung live since March. And um, if there is a chance to, to look out her music, she's got a new album coming out with her band Snow Poet. And um, it'll, be, it'll be wonderful to see how she's responded. A lot of that was recorded in lockdown. And um, yeah, it's just wonderful to have my work mediated through a completely different discipline and for it to bring something really powerful back into my practice. Cherry Smith there. And if you'd like to hear more of Cherry's interview, and let's face it, why wouldn't you? Then you can find it at www.plasticpodcasts.com or on Spotify, Amazon or Apple Podcasts. Now back to Sue Andy. And I wanted to know about how she went from model to poet. But first, another extract from Actress. Do I sing? Honey, I can hit a note so full, melodious, so rich in the... Blues, your heart will jolt. And you've seen me dance, you've seen me flick and twist. There's a rhythm in my feet upon which you insist. I think I went to dance school. I think somebody must have told my mother to send me to dance school to improve my legs. Um, I, she always said I went to dance school because she couldn't dance and she didn't want that to happen to me and no one told her that black people could dance naturally. That was her byline. Um, and I, I, I was kind of like not old enough for the big girls or the big people's classes and too old for the little ones. I mean, I didn't only go to dance school, I did Morris dancing for God's sake. And we'd go off on a Saturday into villages and people would say, Ooh, Bertie, there's a little brown one over there. Look, you know, I hated it, I hated it. We danced in old folks' home and, and same kind of comments. I didn't understand why the girls would put this orange stuff on their legs that I wasn't allowed to use. You know, to make it look like tights. I didn't, I didn't understand, the, why couldn't I have that on my legs? Um, mm. And I was okay at dancing school. And then my school was a stage school that I eventually ended up at, Russell and Lakes. It was a theatre school, good contacts. Supplied the Diddy men for Ken Dodd, of which I was never allowed to audition for. And I didn't know why, I mean, I know why now. And the pantomime. And um, I got into the pantomime one year and my mum came to pick me up and they asked my mum not to bring me back because I didn't fit in the lineup. You know? Right. Yes. No, no, I got you. Yeah. So I was, I was just, I, it, I was almost like that bit too soon. West Side Story came out and I thought, that's mine. That's where I should be. 
you know. My dancing teacher said, anybody found dancing like that, Phil, will be you know, expelled from this school. Modern music, as it was called, then had only just come out as a dance form, you know, officially. But West Side Story was, that's mine. And I suddenly found, because apart from the Clark brothers who did tap, do you remember them? I didn't particularly like tap. Um, there were, I knew something wasn't right. I wasn't a ballet dancer by any means, you know. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. Um, but, oh, West Side Story, yeah, suddenly, you know, there was somewhere I could go, yeah, identity, yeah, identity. It was, it was mega full, it was mega. Um, so, yeah, I just stopped. I think I just said to my mum one day, I don't want to go. And I used to have to go to elocution lessons because I couldn't say tea with thousands. Yeah, and I never went. Because again, I wasn't, I was too old for the little kids and I was too young for the big kids. And, and I used to just whack off and spend the money. I wasn't nice, as I keep saying. Your biography says that you, you, you walked into the arts as a, as a model and came out as a poet. Obviously, it's not as simple as that. I'd become a social worker, residential social worker. Um, I'm really bad on dates. My mum had died and I decided I'd write a book not for publication, but for my children, because I didn't have any grandparents on either side. I had no other history. And I wanted my kids to know about my mum. So I wrote this book and, and somehow it ended up, oh yeah, I think I was only already kind of doing kind of community-based work. So Pip had went to a reading group, you know, posh women who sat around and read books and discussed them, bloody hell, you know. And uh, she said, I think you've got something there. So I sent the only copy I had off to some publisher, mm. who thankfully sent it back. Um, you know, because sometimes they just keep them, don't they? And said, it was, it was interesting, but it needed more racism in it. Um, so that was that. I then sent it, I think, to a community publisher. I'm trying to think how it, how it went. And they were looking for the Black Women Writers Development Worker. And I applied and I got it. And I have this saying where the spirit connects, where I might think of somebody I've not seen for ages or a particular thing and it'll just come at me through a different connection, you know. And whoever thought of the job was really clever because in that stage, art forms were very much in their own, there was visual arts, there was dance, you know, there was writing. No one was bringing them all together. And this job, strip, you know, said it had to link with the visual arts, with film, with all the art forms, which I knew very little. But at that time in Manchester, things were happening where black art was coming in from different directions. So it really fed the job for me. Um, there was the uh, identity group workshop group run by Lam Sisso, and the women in that group were rebellion and decided they would go and form their own women's group. So I had to go with them because I was a black women's writers development worker, wasn't I? And um, so I came up with a name, Black Scribe, and we had a breakaway group. And I don't think I performed for, well, probably two or three shows. I've, I've missed a bit, haven't I? Sorry. I think before I got, sorry, 
before I got the job, that's right, Identity were having a book launch. And the book launch was probably a couple of pages of the day four staples together. And they asked me to put a fashion show together for the book launch, which I did. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and they got up and they read their poems. And I thought, oh, that's really clever because I did like poetry. And, and then I saw they got paid, probably their bus fare, but they got paid. You get paid for talking. Bloody hell. I'm Irish, Liverpudly and Nigerian. What could be a better job, you know what I mean? And I had, you know, love poems under the bed. Nobody loves me. He doesn't love me enough. I had all those. So, I, yeah, I joined. I got the job. I joined them. And I emceed with them on one particular... Oh, I think I'm the first time I ever performed. When I finally said to the group, I think I want to read some poetry. And I stupidly emceed on the same night, which is so ridiculous. Um, and I knew definitely... What I didn't want to do was introduce the poem. The next poem I'm going to, to give is um, about the bunny rabbit that I saw in the field one day when I'd gone down to my Auntie Mary's and it was a green bunny rabbit. And, and I think the poem speaks for itself. Well, it doesn't speak for itself because you're just giving me a 10 minute introduction to it. So I knew I didn't want to do that. So I read my two, three poems, whatever they were. And the other women were really supportive, but they said, you didn't introduce the poem. And what I did was, I'd say something, then I think I'd, I'd spoken too soon, and just jump into the poem without giving it a title. You know? But my poems already had characters, they already had different voices. And I think that's the Irish connection. It's, it's listening to women, it's the... I've always said I want my poetry to be over the garden wall. You know, the gossip, the observation, you know, the witnessing of life. It's the bejesus, Mary, look at her, you know, it's that. Um, so that became my style. You say that you write for um, uh, for performance? Definitely. So is, does that mean that you kind of read it out to yourself an awful lot and just work with the... No, if, if it's a performance piece, I, I write it in my head. If I write it on the page, I very rarely can remember it. I know it doesn't make any sense at all. But if I write, if I write it on the page, it'll always be, a, I'll read it, but it'll always be a page poem. If it's a performance piece, I've written the whole thing in my head. And then I write it down to remember it, if that makes sense. You started off with doing the, um, doing the unintroduced poems um, uh, at events and things like that. And, and so how did that carry on then moving on to doing things like the story of M? Well, um, I was looking at this time because I'm working with Lem Sisser, and he's my he's my mentor. I mean, I have got the women in black scribe; they're there as well. But I'm working with Lem. He's letting me go out with him. You know, he's shown me what a workshop is and stuff like that. Um, in 1985, we were approached. The black scribe were approached by Manchester Festival to do something with a book. It was a there's a big password I can't think of. This book had come out, and it was kind of really important. Watchers and seekers. And um, Ruth turned out to be Eurasian Indian, though we didn't know it at the time. So, that, so this white lady came to speak to eight or nine black women who were very hostile, you know, um, and said, um, you know, do you want to do something with this book? And we were like, why? And how much are you going to pay us? And all the rest of it. We were getting pennies for our gigs. We'd also joined what was forming then Black Arts Alliance. So we joined that as a collective. 
and we spent weeks debating who was black, what was black. Oh, I just went on and on. And I think somebody said, well, we need to do something to launch ourselves. And somebody must have said, well, we've had this offer from the Manchester Festival. And I said, why don't we make it bigger than that? Why don't we do a variety show, which would now cause mixed media production? And I said, I'll go and talk to the Manchester Festival. And it was lucky because Phil Jones was the director. He'd come down from the Albany Empire. He promoted black work, you know, he used to tour Nina Simone. And he said, well, where do you want to do it? And I said, oh, Moss Side Library. And he said, what about the Royal Exchange Theatre? And I went, yeah, what about the Royal Exchange? And I thought, oh my God, you know. So I walked out there and I watched the Royal Exchange Theatre and thought, shit. But we put on a five hour show and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. We had drummers, Indian dancers, never been done before. 1985, can you imagine that? Never been done before. So I'm, I'm in the arts, you know. I'm jumped right in. So later I got um, a commission from the ICA. Again, you know, nothing other buggers efforts. Lois Keelan's at the ICA uh, with Catherine Agu from, who's from Manchester. And um, they give out these commissions. I get a commission. I produce a piece called This Is All I've Got To Say, which links back to Carrie, Carrie Mayne Weems in the States. You know, there's a link back to seeing her work. And it was okay. You know, it was all right. It was a bit, I'll tell the white people what's wrong with them. You know, it was a bit like that. And at the end, I did a poem that was a dedication to white women who had married or had relationships with a black man. And Lois ran me on the train going home. God, I must have had a mobile phone. And, um, and told me the best part of it was the last poem. And the best work you can ever create is your own work, your own life experience. And by the time I got to Manchester, I had the outline of story of M and a snotty nose and red eyes because I cried all the way home. Really? I probably wrote it in about an hour. Because I always say, you know, story of M is not clever writing because I'm just remembering. Do you know what I mean? I didn't sit there and think, I'm going to write back this character. It's going to be a white woman. You know, I didn't, it's not that. It's not that. And texts always find it odd when I talk about she will sit there, you know, and they're like, well, aren't you the performer? I go, yeah, but she'll sit there. M will sit there. This is me at this moment. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's not modesty when I say it's not great writing because it's not fiction. It's actually fact. I could have put so much more in it. And sometimes if I read it, I think, oh, I've forgotten all that, but that bit. So. When 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 you when you're writing before performance and you perform then performing your writing, does it feel like it's two two halves of the same thing, or are they two some two very different aspects to it? Let me name drop. Oh, please do. I am um, hung out with Eartha Kitt. She reviewed my first double cassette. Was that a cassette? Yeah, it was a cassette. Was that a CD? Or it was a CD. I can't remember. Um. And when she said, do you want to hang out together? You know, in that voice? Mm. I said, yeah, because my mum would have been chuffed, you know. And she said, there's just one thing. If you want to hang out with Eartha Kitt, go buy a ticket. If you want to hang out with Eartha, I'll hang out. 
So that meant Eartha Kitt on stage, Eartha off stage. So I'm very conscious that there's a Sue Andy on stage, but don't bring her home. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It does. And is, is, that, is, that, is it difficult not to bring her home? Can you easily leave her behind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm very critical of her. I, you know, and I'm very complimentary. I come off stage and think, whoa, I did really well there. Whoa, full form, so good. And sometimes I come at home, oh, God, I didn't do that well. And that doesn't matter whether it's a, a performance or a conference, you know, or I've spoken at a conference or I've been a delegate and opened my mouth in a conference. Um, I always analyse her, always. And I think that way you can turn and say, I think I was quite good tonight. And that's not ego, that's analysing that piece that you've just done. Despite her Manchester BME award, Sue Andy's not comfortable with the terminology that comes with it. In this section, we talk about her feelings on this, as well as the rise in visibility of black and mixed-race Irish, and also what her heritage means to her, all in just over 10 minutes. I'm always amused, in a way, in a way, when somebody's been mugged or, you know, assaulted, a crime has been committed, and they'll say there was two assailants, one was white and one was mixed race. How do you, how did you know that? Did you ask them? Why are you being assaulted? You say, excuse me, are you mixed race? You can't bloody look at somebody and tell them. You can't look at somebody light-skinned and tell they're mixed race. That is the arrogance of racism. You know, and it's like terminology. Somebody was saying to me the other day, but you're BAME. And I was going, I'm not bloody BAME. I'm black. Or, oh, you're not black, you're mixed race. I'm black, you're stupid. I'm black, you know. Arrogance, it's arrogance that allows the institutions to come out with all this terminology and then tell us that we've asked for it. Well, I never got a letter in the post. I never voted to be called BAME, ethnic minority, multicultural, culturally diverse, and all the other terminologies that have come out since I've been in the arts. The whole notion of what they're calling um, mixed race diaspora, that's like uh, people who are, who are black and Asian, but also of, of, mm. of Irish heritage and so forth, it's tended to be ignored for quite some time. Totally ignored. Has there been any kind of particular breakthrough or reason for there now being um, the, uh, the, the, the the mixed the, the mixed race Irish uh, exhibition that, that you are part of and, and other uh, oh, other things like that? To be fair, I'm not part of the people who organise the exhibition, and I. But I think to answer that is that because the people have come of age in their strength, in their personal determination to want to trace their background and to share their life stories. That's what's happened. And it only takes one person to step out and call out to others. People who have felt gagged all their lives, you know, given the opportunity to speak. And they've grabbed it. And I have so much respect for them for that. I mean, if Charmin hadn't set up the mixed race site and searched it, because I mean, there are mixed race sites and biracial sites and all these kind of sites, especially coming out of the States. Sites of brown people, such language. But I think whoever started the, 
the one for, from the Irish background in Ireland. Well, you're going to give out a gong. They deserve a gong. Because to be given an opportunity to speak and a platform to speak and for somebody to listen to you, you no one can take that away from you. And good God, they should know that in Ireland because the confession box is a great box, isn't it? You know? It's not like, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace, I've, you know, I kicked the cat. A confessional can also allow you to share something, something that's just, you know, it's got a grip on your heart so tight that actually you can't breathe. And I think a lot of the people, they haven't been able to breathe until they found themselves in a conversation, not just speaking to the world, in a conversation. So Lawrence Olivia told an ex-partner of mine who's a cab driver, the best story in the world is your own story. And it is. It is. Do you ever listen to, listen to The Listening Project? Yes. At the beginning, wasn't that just amazing? I can remember one, and it was an Irish family. And there were 10 kids. And they used to get a chicken and a bag of potatoes. And she called it... Um, what was the terminology is? Well, I suppose it was sack of potatoes. There's no terminology for a bag of potatoes. And um, and she says, like, if you got the skin, you were, you felt top of the house, you know, because it, there was that little chicken to go round. Um, when people talk about hardship, now it's a different kind of hardship, isn't it? And I'm not knocking it, anybody that's suffered, you know, during, before the lockdown. But there was a real suffering of hardship that came then. Again, that came in with caste and cultural identity and where you were from. You know, kids with no shoes. I always remember at primary school, and I am there, I'm that pretty little girl in the good clothes and all the rest of it. And we had a big Irish family live nearby. And, um, and this little boy used to foul himself. He didn't pee himself, he fouled himself. And a teacher gave us both a lolla, and we walked this child home through the streets with poo on his legs. And the teacher said, just take him home. How cruel of that. Now, I'm not saying a teacher's job is to clean that child up, but had that been a nice little kid who'd had an accident, then she would have been cleaned up. She would have been sent to the nurse, wouldn't she? You know, and even though she probably got a difficult girl, she would have been cleaned up. But this little Irish tinker lad, and we didn't take him all the way home. Imagine what we were, two little girls, we walked him up there, and we were horrible. And we probably walked into the top of his street and then ran all the way back to school laughing. Yeah. The Irish has suffered. So that's why when Mandela was, when we hoped Mandela would be released. I watched a programme once on people who were leaving South Africa in readiness of the white, you know, government losing its power. And I can remember it went to a golf club and there were four Irish guys there saying why they would go home because they're going to let the blacks in. And I was so full of hate for these Irish guys. How dare you? All you've gone through, how dare you look down on black people like that? Because you were back in England, you weren't bishop. And over there, 
well, whiteness gives you superiority, but you're still bloody Irish. You're still the bottom of the ranks, but you're pretending you're not. Do you know what I mean? Why be the dog when you, you know, when you could be the flea on the dog? Telling your own story and getting other people to tell their own stories is an act, I, I, I think, of, of optimism. It's, it's, it's the notion that I can not only that you've got a story to tell, but other people want to tell their stories and want to hear your story as well. Do you think you're an optimist? Well, no, I put it that way. Um, I've done two lots of research. Aperosel, which I said was about our fathers who came in from 1925 and strength of our mothers. Um, I haven't interviewed anybody that hasn't wept their heart out during the interview. Even if they had horrible fathers and uncaring mothers. So if that makes me optimistic, then yes. I think history books, well, I don't think we know. History books doesn't tell the story of ordinary people. What, what, what does being a member of the Irish diaspora mean to you? Well, it definitely means about the gift of the gap. I think, I think we don't forget. And I know that can be really negative, especially when you go back and think about, which of course I didn't live in because I wasn't in Ireland, the troubles. Um, I think part of the troubles is in our inability to forget the past. But I think again about the history books, I think we carry our history with us. It's a burden, it's a celebration. It, it defines who we are and our behaviour, both positively and negatively. Um, but I think the burden of it is if we allow it to rule our present day. I think the joy of it, if, it, if we can laugh at it and, and use it to inform us, you know, and to, and to direct our future in a different way, in a different man manner. I used to have a kid in care, Andrew, who, who would take off all the members of staff. It was a small children's home, five or six kids. And he'd take off that stuff like that. And my boss was Irish, Kieran O'Malley. And when we did night duty, that's what we did all night. Long was tell stories, you know. But Andrew used to take each member of staff off, you know, whether it was the way they spoke or the way they drank, something really funny. And I said to him once, so what, what's, what, what do you do when you do me? So oh, you're dead easy. Yours is, I remember. I want to cry when I say that. That's made me feel quite tearful. But yeah, yeah, that was mine, I remember. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Sue Andy. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Cherry Smith. Music by Jack Devaney. You can find and subscribe to us at www.plasticpodcasts.com. Alternatively, you can email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts are supported using public funding by Arts Council England.